Good morning. Who likes to read the newspaper? Anybody newspaper readers in here? Who has had the opportunity to read the New York Times? If you like reading newspapers, then the New York Times is for you. Uh, it's been long nicknamed the Gray Lady because of the density of its copy and the depth of its coverage. More than anything, the New York Times is a paper for people who like to read. This is a big newspaper. The thing is huge. It'll take you, uh, for those who like to read, it'll take you probably a couple of days to read through the entire newspaper. But several years ago, the editors decided to devote pages two and three of the New York Times, not to important, timely articles, but to summaries of articles that appear later on in the newspaper. They have put in kind of Reader's Digest condensed versions of real lengthy articles on pages two and three. Management explained that they made this change to address a couple of problems that they were having from its readers, a couple of complaints. One complaint was that readers said they didn't have enough time to read the fuller articles. So they wanted a Reader's Digest condensed version of those articles. Another one was that readers said that because there was so much in each issue, and there's a lot in every issue of the New York Times, that they were overlooking articles that they really cared about. So they had these condensed versions of these articles available to address these problems. One observer, that, though, says that these changes are also evident of a larger trend in our world, one that might not be for the good. Many believe that this new feature is driven by how the Internet is rewiring not only our reading habits, but our, the, our circuits in our brains that have to do with cognition. Professional writers, readers, and researchers, they spend a lot of time on the Internet, and for good reason. It used to be that when you were doing research for a paper or for a publication, that you would have to spend days, weeks, sometimes even months, going from library to library and sitting there, going through card catalogs, going through books, making notes. It takes forever to do research. Now, guess what you get to do? You get to sit in the comfort of your own home, type in some keywords, tricky phrases, and, and search browsers, go to certain sites that have to do with research, and what used to take weeks and months to do research now only takes hours or perhaps days to do, and you never have to leave your home. It's great. It's a great tool. But more than that, the Internet has become the conduit for which information flows through our eyes and into our minds. Most of the information that we receive on a daily basis comes from where? Comes from the Internet comes from articles that we read on the internet. The problem is that all this comes at a price. The internet not only supplies the stuff we think about, but is also shaping our thought process. There's a study that was done by some scholars at the University College of London that showed that as people view material online, they usually skim through this material rather than reading it deeply. They hop from one source to another 
and very rarely do they ever go back to the original site that they started with. Generally, they read no more than one or two pages of some type of material of an article or a book, and then they leap to another site, never coming back. The authors concluded that the users are, are not reading online in the traditional sense that we used to read books and articles, and that there are signs that new forms of reading are emerging as users power browse, trying to find information. They said it seems that most go online to avoid reading in the traditional sense. Some psychologists are actually a little bit worried about this process. They're worried that the kind of thinking that the internet promotes, which aims at efficiency and immediacy, are withering away the, our ability to do the kind of deep reading that books call for. When we read online, we end up becoming mere decoders of information. We don't engage and make rich mental connections with the material that we're reading. One professional writer noticed this loss in his reading that he does when he's not on the internet. He says, whereas he used to read material, pages of material very confidently and very comfortably, he finds that as he's reading printed material, now his mind begins to drift. He gets fidgeting. He easily loses the thread of thought as he's reading printed material. And he writes this. He says, I feel as if I'm always dragged, I always drag my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. And herein lies the problem, and it ends up being a kind of warning to us. It is in the sustained, uninterrupted reading of a book that we end up making our own associations, that we end up drawing our own inferences and our own analogies, that we end up fostering our own ideas. Deep reading is indistinguishable from deep thinking. And that brings us to our text today. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Go ahead and turn over there, please. John chapter 3, 14 through 21. Now, not every verse of John 4, 3, 14 through 21 is on the tip of our tongue, right? Most of us cannot quote that. However, there is one passage in there that most of us can rattle pretty much from heart, right? Verse 16, John 3, 16. And this verse is often called the gospel in a nutshell. And of course, most of us can re recite it in what version? The King James, right? We all pretty much know it in the King James. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Now, while there's some truth to this being the gospel in a nutshell, it has some truth to it, this idea can leave us assuming that if we can recite John 3.16, we pretty much have the gospel all together and known as if the rest of the Bible is strictly commentary. And that's a mistaken conception. That's a mistaken idea. This is one passage, this is one sentence in a whole discourse in John chapter 3. And if you really want to understand what John is talking about here, you have to take it in its entire context. And to get the entire context, you actually have to go all the way back to verse 1 in chapter 3. But for right now, we're going to jump back just two verses, and we're going to start in verses 14 and 15. This is where Jesus makes reference to an incident from the Old Testament. He's talking about the serpent in the wilderness. The fact is, though, that many people who know John 3.16, and there's a, a ton of people out in the world that know John 3.16, and you can't go to a baseball game or a football game without somebody holding up a sign that says what? Exactly. John 3.16. Here's the gospel. For those who know John 3.16, most of them aren't going to have the foggiest idea what Jesus was talking about in verses 14 and 15. They're not going to have a clue what Jesus is talking about. They're not going to know why the story of the wilderness serpent serves as an introduction to for God so loved the world. What does that have to do with it? Verse 16, of course, tells of God's love for the world, His sending His Son, so that everyone who believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But what does a snake in the wilderness have to do with that? In fact, the uninformed might well assume that this wilderness snake is another appearance of the one who tempted Adam and Eve all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. But they'd be wrong, because this serpent that's being lifted up is not a tempter. This serpent that's being lifted up in the wilderness is a savior. Reading John 3.16 and thinking that you have the whole gospel story, if you can quote John 3.16, is like reading in hip-hop fashion all over the internet. Hopping and skipping everywhere. You may, in fact, get the basic nugget of the story, but you'll miss the in-depth kind of understanding that only comes from deeper reading, from living with Scripture. One way to start viewing this John passage in its larger context is to imagine that there is a hyperlink in verse 14, you know what a hyperlink is? For those of you who are not internet savvy, it's these little highlighted words in an article that if you click it, it'll take you all the way to another article so you can get other information that has to go along with that. So we're going to pretend that there's a hyperlink in verse 14 that takes us all the way back to Numbers chapter 21. And actually, in many versions of your Bible, 
we have the equivalent of a hyperlink system, don't we? It's called a chain reference system. It's either in the middle column, it's on the outside margins, could be in the footer with a little letter or a number next to the verse that will take you to another part of the Bible that has to do with what we're talking about in this particular verse. So we're going to jump to that story for a minute. But unlike the usual internet reading practice, we're going to return to where we started, and thanks to numbers, we're going to have a better understanding of what Jesus is talking about. So, mark John chapter 3 with your finger or a piece of paper or something, and turn all the way back to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. This number story finds the people of Israel in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan after the Exodus. Their route is requiring them skirt the land of Edom. And this detour makes the Israelites cranky. They're upset. And it brings up complaints that they've raised to Moses before. Why have you brought us out of the land of Egypt to die here in the wilderness. And then, in a rant that doesn't even make sense, they say, there is nothing to eat here, there is nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Nothing to eat. We hate eating this manna. Does it make sense? No, because they got something to eat. Their bellies are full. It's not like what they want, but they're full. They've complained not only against Moses, however, who else have they ranted against? God. They have complained against God. Now, if we're really into deep reading, we should go back even a little further. We're not going to, but we should go back further into Exodus and see that this is not their first occasion again with complaining, is it? It's not their second. It's not their third. In fact, it is almost the 14th occasion on which the children of Israel have complained against Moses and or God. And in each preceding time, God addressed their complaints in some way. He either just simply took care of the problem, or there were some times where he punished the people, and some people ended up dying. And here they are at it again. Children of Israel don't learn, do they? And don't get too self-righteous about it, because folks were the same way. We don't learn either. We don't learn either. But this time, according to Numbers chapter 21... God sends poisonous snakes, and it bites them, and people start dying. A lot of people are dying. Horrible snakes. This brings the rest of the people back very quickly to Moses and saying, oops, we're sorry. <laughs> we're sorry. We didn't want it. We just shouldn't have complained against you. We shouldn't have complained against God. We have sinned against Him. We have sinned against you. 
So they plead with Moses, please intervene with God. Please do something about these horrible snakes. And when Moses did, God told him, you make a, a serpent out of bronze, stick it on a pole, put it up in the middle of the people, and whoever looks on that serpent after they've been bitten, they will live. I also find it very interesting that it doesn't say they're going to be immediately healed and they're going to be feeling good. It says they're going to live. They won't die. So when they did, they lived. Now, go back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to go back toward the beginning of the chapter. We're going to look at the larger context here. We're going to go all the way back to verse 1. And we see that Jesus mentioned, uh, uh, John's mention of the serpent in the wilderness, or Jesus mentioned here, um, was in a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And this man had come to Jesus with some questions. He wanted to understand Jesus' message a little bit more. He wanted to understand the mission of Jesus. And as they were both Jewish, and as they were both very steeped in Hebrew Scripture, Jesus was able to use this serpent story with fairly good certainty that Nicodemus would know what this story was and be able to understand this story. And he used it as a comparison to his own mission. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Nicodemus suddenly begins to understand that Jesus intends to be a Savior. Probably at that point, though, Nicodemus doesn't envision, envision Jesus dying on a cross and being lifted up in the sense that Jesus was talking about. But at least he's beginning to realize what Jesus means. Jesus is saying, just like the people who looked upon that serpent in the wilderness in the days of Israel were able to live once they had been bitten, those in today's time, if they've been bitten by sin, they can look to Jesus on the cross and be saved through Him. So looking to Jesus with belief would enable all those who are dying in sin to live eternally. All this deeper reading of the Bible here, going back and making some references in Old Testament Scripture and coming back, is going to help us grasp what Jesus said after John 3.16. When Jesus says, indeed, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
Recall in the number story that the live serpents were agents of judgment, right? The people grumbled, the serpents came along and bit them, and they died. They died because of their sin. Yet here is where Jesus tells Nicodemus how his role differs from the serpents in the wilderness. Jesus did not come to be like those biting serpents that were on the ground going around killing people. That's not the serpent that Jesus came to be like. He was not sent to condemn the world. Jesus was sent to save the world. Only the bronze serpent that was on the pole is a representation of the role that Jesus came to fulfill because Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. He didn't need to condemn the world. It was already there. Because everyone had sinned and sin brings condemnation. He came to save the condemned. He came to save all those who were literally dying in sin. It is not enough to read this verse right here, John 3:16, in isolation of everything else. Because if we do, we become mere decoders. We get more out of it if we do what Jesus invited Nicodemus to do. To make a connection with this and the Old Testament stories. To make these rich mental connections that Jesus was making and that Jesus was bringing. A deep reading of Scripture, a deep reading of John chapter 3 is going to help us to understand what Jesus was saying in John 3.16 in the same way that Nicodemus was going to understand it. But it also helps us to realize that the theme of God saving those who were dying is not limited to the story from Numbers. It's also not limited to the verses that we find here in John. Take Psalm. 107, verses 17 through 20, for example. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His, world, His word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction." Deep reading. It's where we come to a better understanding of Scripture. Reading a verse here, reading a verse there, is not going to help us understand what God would have us to know. But making those great mental connections between what Jesus taught and the Old Testament and going back and forth is where we truly come to understand Scripture in the same way Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to understand His will. In Numbers, could some of those people have refused to look at that bronze serpent? Sure they could have. And if they refused to look at that bronze serpent, what happened to them? They died. 
It's hard to imagine if people would do that, but it's possible. Likewise, sin-bitten people. Is it possible if people are suffering from sin that they would refuse to look at Jesus and live? Absolutely. Do we understand why? No. It's possible. Now, there might be some this morning who are dealing with sin. You may have sin in your life that is keeping you from a proper relationship with God. You may have something in your life right now that if you died this very day, you would not see heaven. It's like Jesus says, all we have to do is look to Jesus and do what He says and you can live. Now you have a choice this morning. You have the same choice that the people in the wilderness had. You can either look and live or you can look away and die. That's your choice this morning and you're going to make that choice this morning. You're either going to look to Jesus and you're going to come and see one of the elders and make the right changes in your life, whether you need to confess sin and repent and ask for forgiveness, whether you need to be baptized in order to have your sins taken away. You're going to make that decision this morning. I'm going to look to Jesus and live or I'm going to look away and die. You're going to make that decision this morning. I encourage you to make the right decision. Don't take the risk that this would be the only opportunity that you have to live. Don't risk the chance that the Lord may come before we even meet again this afternoon. Don't take the risk that something would happen and you die before we ever meet again. The consequences are too great. So as we sing this song, think about it. And I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you, look to Jesus and live and come while we stand and sing.